0: Continue, God, as you have in worship and song, to gather us to yourself, to draw us into your presence, your glorious and majestic presence. Cause us to be awed by your goodness, your strength, your love, and your justice. We bow before you. As we open your word together, we ask that you would give us a similar disposition open eyes, open ears, open hearts to you. I pray that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart if my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent in any way with your word. May they be quickly forgotten. Teach us, O God. Amen. So for the fourth Sunday in a row, we're reading from the book of Acts. Uh, For the third Sunday in a row, we'll be reading from the second chapter of Acts. For the second Sunday in a row, we'll be reading the last six verses from the second chapter of Acts. Listen closely, this is God's word. Hope I don't choke on it. They, verse 42, uh, they is the 3,000 people in verse 41 who have just come to faith, come to believe and trust the Lord Jesus and who were baptized. This they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, Those who are being saved. And there's a lot there in those six verses that describe what we've talked about as the church as we focus for these five or six weeks on the church, the early church, and who the church has been, who the church can be. And to give us a little background and foundation for understanding where we're going to go this morning and how the church got to be who it was, I'm going to review really quickly or recap some of the things that we've talked about over the last three Sundays, which some of you will remember, began three Sundays ago with what we called the nascent church, about which we said that church, one, paid attention to the teachings of Jesus and specifically the things that Jesus said about the kingdom or the reign of God. Second, they received and welcomed God's empowering presence, the Holy Spirit. Third, they prayed constantly. Fourth, they bore witness to what they had seen, heard, and experienced in and about Jesus. We saw this in chapter 1 of the book of Acts. And then two weeks ago in the second chapter of Acts, we read about how the Holy Spirit visited the community of Jesus' people powerfully on the first Pentecost day after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And how that community of Jesus' people, one, was obedient to Jesus' instructions for them, two, had supernatural experiences themselves embodied Three, they were willing to appear foolish for what they had come to see and believe. Four, they were outwardly focused. It wasn't an inwardly focused group of people, but constantly outwardly focused. And five, they were inherently resurrection-centric. Everything is about the resurrection of Jesus at that point. Then last Sunday, we got to the last six verses of chapter two, and they're focused particularly on two mentions in those verses— Of the phrase breaking bread together which scholars understand referred to the meal that we call communion or the Lord's Supper or in some traditions the Eucharist and about that church which we call the sacramental church because not only were new believers baptized in that community but they were then invited to participate in this communal meal we said that this sacramental church recognized and recognized in the lord's supper first jesus suffering and jesus uniquely atoning death for the sins of the world second they recognized and we recognize in that meal jesus call called to his followers to join him in that way or that path of suffering and third they saw and we saw in and through that meal that Jesus' followers are not only in that meal, through that meal, united to God and with God, but also united to and with one another. Look around real quick, 360, that's what you get. And now this morning, we're going to dig back in a little deeper to those last few verses in chapter 2, and specifically verse 42, which reads, this community of Jesus' followers, now numbering more than 3,000 people, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And this is no surprise because you remember back in chapter 1, verse 14, Luke wrote that that community of people all joined together constantly in prayer. That's what they did, and that seems to be what they continued to do. They were constantly praying. And as I said a few weeks ago and have said before, that constant praying didn't mean that 24-7 they were going around with their heads bowed, their hands clasped, and their eyes closed. That wasn't necessarily or probably wasn't at all exactly what Luke meant. But those are okay ways to pray, but that's not exactly the way they were all the time. But rather, that prayer for them meant that they were constantly in willful communication with god and i'm going to use that as a definition a very simple definition this morning for prayer willful communication with god it was as much a part of their lives as is breathing for us and an essential facet of their life and a relationship with god it was not an add-on it was not an option it was not really even a spoke on the wheel but it was an essential component of their lives and their life with God. But inquiry minds want to know, what did that look like? How did they pray? With whom did they pray? Where did they pray? When did they pray? What did they pray? And what, if any, outcome, result, or effect was there from their praying? What did their constant prayer and their devotion to prayer look like? And what was the result of all of that? The passage before us in Acts 2 doesn't answer many of these questions and it doesn't really attempt to, but maybe we get a clearer picture of what that looked like from the rest of Acts that follows. Obviously written by the same author and because prayer is mentioned more in the book of Acts than any other book in the New Testament. Part of that's because of the length of the book of Acts. It's long and substantial and there's room for more. But also because the author of the book of Acts, Luke, cares a whole lot about prayer, and it's really important that those who read his book get the idea that prayer is really essential. There were four uh, gospel writers in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke gives more attention to prayer than any of the other gospel writers. So, surveying the book of Acts, we see the following, or we see followers of Jesus praying When they had a big decision to make, chapter 1, at and around meals, chapter 2, at fixed times during the day per Jewish customs, 3, chapter 3. We see followers of Jesus in the book of Acts praising God in prayer, chapter 4, asking God for boldness to speak God's word to people, chapter 4, asking God's blessing on servant leaders, deacons in that case, chapter 6. We see followers of Jesus in Acts praying for themselves before they died, putting their futures into God's hands through prayer. Chapter 7. We see them praying for mercy, asking God for mercy and protection in some ways and at sometimes from themselves and from temptation. Chapter 8. When they were afraid and otherwise feeling helpless and in need of God. Chapter 9. They prayed at the temple. They prayed in their homes. They prayed along rivers. They prayed at the beach. They prayed in prison, we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And sometimes they coupled praying with fasting. If we added to this list from observations we have made over the past three Sundays about the nascent Pentecostal sacramental church, we might also assume that these earliest followers of Jesus also prayed regularly through Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. Have you ever prayed through Scripture? Have you ever prayed through the teaching of Jesus? Try it. And they must have prayed that they would have opportunities to bear witness. That was important to them. And that they would have boldness in doing so. Something else they prayed. And that in addition to praying for themselves, they would have enthusiastically and zealously prayed for others outside of the church. I think a lot of our praying as a church in our body is focused on ourselves and in ourselves and the church and Jesus turns that upside down especially for the early church that had plenty of enemies telling his people pray for your enemies when's the last time you prayed for Vladimir Putin not that he's your enemy or our enemy but when's the last time you prayed for Vladimir Putin anyone pray for President Putin this week this is amazing That's awesome. Keep it up. They might have prayed that God would give them strength to endure suffering and not to run from such. I like to run from suffering. They must have prayed for strength to endure suffering in the way of Jesus. And they certainly would have prayed for unity, for unity in Christ, unity through Christ, unity by Christ. As we see in the book of Acts, the church is constantly tempted to splinter and to go different directions and disagree about different things. Of course, Luke's account of the earliest church is descriptive as he describes them as praying constantly and devoted in prayer. Luke's account of the earliest church is descriptive. It reports how they were and what happened, but we might also consider Luke's writing, his record, his history, including what he says about prayer as prescriptive as well, giving us a blueprint, giving us a guide, giving us a framework for how prayer fits into the lives today of people and a community of Christ followers trying to live out their faith and follow Jesus. Of course, we all pray. I don't know if we all pray constantly or if we are all devoted to prayer, but I would assume that all of us in some way, shape, or form pray. If not, If we are not devoted to prayer or prayers constantly, could we be? And if so, what might that look like? If your life is like like mine, it feels really full. There aren't a lot of margins. Every hour, sometimes it feels every minute is taken, is occupied, is booked, is spoken for. But at the same time, there's a tremendous amount of room in my life for more prayer, for constant prayer, for continual prayer, for devotion to prayer, despite the sin of busyness. Few of us would probably say that our lives are saturated in prayer. But for most of us, a life saturated in prayer would probably be transformative. And what we see in Acts, in the first two chapters of Acts and throughout the book, gives us a starting point, a foundation, a guide, good. I suspect for many of us, our prayer lives consist primarily of two prayers, thank you and help me, or sometimes thank you and heal me. And that's fine, that's a good start, but more is available. Prayer can be more than that. And so I'm going to go through a few things that some of which are derived from the scriptures and some of which are hopefully helpful understandings of prayer that get us closer to that place. And so for starters, we would be better off if prayer was simply a bigger part of our lives. Jonathan Edwards, who at, some, at times has been called America's greatest theologian. I know he's known best for that awful sermon, but he's known as America's greatest theologian, and he wrote, prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. Prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. And none of us would try to go without breathing for more than a minute or two. It's just not in our nature, and that would be the end of us. And yet, most of us go without prayer for great lengths of time at our own risk. Henry Nouwen once wrote that prayer, when we are faithful to it and practice it regularly, slowly leads us to an experience of rest, rest, and opens us to God's active presence in other words, allows us to see God in our midst and to encounter God in our midst, which is something that probably many of us long for. Intentional, conscious, devoted prayer isn't just for Sunday mornings in the sanctuary or the dinner table, though those times and places are opportunities for prayer that many of us take up. But we would be well if prayer was a bigger part of our everyday, all-of-the-time lives. Second, as we endeavor to have prayer be a bigger or more frequent or more important or ubiquitous part of our lives, we must not think of prayer as something that we have to do in order to be good, righteous, faithful, impressive, good enough, or as if someone's eternity or the future of everything rides on my prayer or your prayer. But rather, we would do well to think of prayer as an opportunity as access to God, and as a gracious invitation. Without a doubt, God is eager to hear from you and me and to have our attention, but God is not evaluating us. God is not grading us. God is not judging us, either by the quantity or the quality of our praying. If he was, we would all be toast. Instead, we must understand prayer to be like sitting on our Heavenly Father's lap, pouring out our hearts. I find it curious in Acts that the early church didn't pray because they had to, but because they got to. Not because prayer was commanded, because it never is in the book of Acts, but because it was available to them. And they were that in touch with and that dependent on God. Beware of have to praying. And instead, understand prayer as a gracious invitation from a loving Father who cares for you, who loves you. Third, we would do well to begin all of our prayers with praise to God, even if just one line like this. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Blessed be your name. May your name be held in high regard. You are amazing, you are holy, you are hallowed, you are praiseworthy. Hallowed be thy name. Many of our prayers begin in lots of different places. Apparently, beginning with praise is a good practice, according to Jesus. Fourth, pray that God's kingdom will come. Prioritize the coming of God's reign. Make this the overarching theme of the bulk of one's prayers. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are not praying for God's kingdom to come into existence. It already exists. Rather, we are praying for God's kingdom to take over at all points in the personal, social, and political order where it is now excluded on earth as it is in heaven. We are not praying for God's kingdom to come into existence. It already exists. But we are praying for it to take over areas where it is not currently. We know that God's kingdom is not a place and God's kingdom is not just after we die reality, but rather it is the realm in which what God wills is done. And God's will is that people will love him and love one another. God's will is characterized by unity and justice and mercy and kindness and peace and joy. God's kingdom is characterized by truth and grace. By forgiveness and healing and restoration and generosity, thy kingdom come. May thy kingdom come. May thy kingdom come. May we pray that, even at risk of our own kingdom coming. May thy kingdom come. And then fifth, prayer certainly involves listening. As we said earlier, prayer is intentional communication with God. And intentional communication... Goes both ways, does it not? We all know people who have a hard time hearing because they have a hard time stopping talking. You know people like that? Am I, maybe I'm that person. Intentional communication with God involves listening. And so leaving space to hear God. The Danish theologian, philosopher, author, 19th century, Siren Kierkegaard, wrote, As my prayer became more attentive and inward, I had less and less to say. I finally became completely silent. I started to listen, which is even further removed from speaking. I first thought that praying entailed speaking. I then learned that praying is hearing, not merely being silent. This is how it is. To pray does not mean to listen to oneself speaking Prayer involves becoming silent and and being silent and waiting until God is heard. Kierkegaard later writes elsewhere, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. You may or may not disagree with that. You don't have to agree with that, but at least give it some thought. Richard Foster in our current day wrote, to pray is to change and from a reformed or presbyterian perspective i might tweak that and say to pray is to be changed by god prayer is the central avenue god uses to transform us if we are unwilling to change we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives the closer we come to the heartbeat of god the more we see our need and the more we desire to be conformed to christ and this, this leads to my sixth point, almost done. We must be careful not to embrace a transactional understanding of prayer. We must be careful not to embrace a transactional understanding of prayer. We must be careful not to embrace a view of prayer or of God that involves an exchange of goods and services. In other words, we pray and God acts or God must act. We would do well to stay a safe distance from an understanding of prayer in which one believes either that he or she can control God or that God owes her something because she prays. It doesn't work that way. That's not how things are. Though God wants to hear from us, we cannot ever infringe on God's sovereignty. And we must not think that we can or should we must be careful not to slip into a transactional understanding of prayer number seven praying complements action but does not replace it prayer works together with action but is not intended to replace it a person may pray god feed the poor people in my community and yet never purchase food for that person or the poor. A person may pray, Lord, have mercy on such and such, but never offer themselves in faith as a means of that mercy. May our prayers never be a substitute for action for which God has gifted us, placed us, empowered us, provided for us, resourced us, but may our prayers undergird that to which God calls us. May they go together. May we not be people who pray for mercy for other people and yet refuse to be that mercy in God's leading and with the resources God has given us and in God's power. We read in the fourth chapter of Nehemiah when neighboring enemies are threatening God's people as they attempt to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, God's people both prayed and they posted a guard. Nehemiah says, we prayed, for our protection and well-being and we went ahead and posted that guard it's not one or the other but both prayer complements faithful responsible sensible loving action but is not meant to replace it and finally may our prayers be simple Big words, complicated words, many words are not necessary. Jesus said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Do not be like them. May God forgive us when we pray to sound good. God is not impressed with our prayers. God is not impressed with how we sound. Therefore, we should never attempt to impress anyone with our prayers. Keep it simple. Keep it unpretentious. Keep it true. Keep it pure. And God will hear. And he will be honored. And he will join us in that conversation. This week I did a memorial service and then a burial service after that for a long-time member of this congregation who had a daughter, has a daughter, had a daughter, who her whole life was developmentally disabled in a wonderful spirit. And so after the memorial service and after, as a part of the burial service, midway through, I just paused and said, if anyone here, and it was not a big group of us, 10 or 12 gathered around the casket. If anyone here wants to say something to God out loud or in silence, I'm going to give us a a few moments for that. And there was a silence, and it went on for a few seconds, and I thought maybe this is going to be an awkward, long silence. I'm accustomed to that. Let it go. And then after uh, just a few seconds, and there are a lot of bright, intelligent, well-aged, mature, gifted people in that group. But after a few moments, only one person spoke up. It was Susie who said, Thank you, God, for Mom. Thank you for the ways that she loved me. Thank you for the ways that she pointed me to you. Thank you for loving, Mom." That's how it summed it up. Pretty simple. Simple words, simple message from the heart. And Susie, in many ways, lives at a level that many of us don't or maybe many of us can't. And yet, prayer is just that simple. As is communion with the Father who loves you, who is present for us, and who wants to hear from us.